0: Let's turn in our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 10. As we continue our journey through the book of Nehemiah, we're sort of looking at a time period where it seems sort of a great spiritual revival, a renewing work of God's Spirit and ministry among the people is taking place. They spend a great deal of time giving attention to the Word of God after the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt and the people gathered, hungering to hear what God's Word would say and spent a significant amount of time just letting themselves be exposed to the Word of God and its truths and responding to it. Chapter 9 then recorded a Really a chapter of of lengthy prayer that then took place responsively as they then transitioned in response to God, just crying out to the Lord in prayer, different people it seems, particularly making confession of sin, acknowledging their errors, rehearsing the history of Israel and just how many times they had failed God repeatedly and yet how God continued to be so merciful to them, so patient, That he continued to be long-suffering with them, despite their many times of turning against God and slipping away spiritually, rebelling, and yet God would restore them and continue to show grace to them. And as they kind of came to the end of this time of confession and recognizing their weakness spiritually, it tells us at the end of chapter 9 uh, that they said in 9 verse 38, our last verse we left with, and because of all this, we make a sure covenant. And write it, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. So we take note that the end of this prayer brought them to a place where, after having spent some time seeking God, acknowledging their errors, recognizing God's goodness to them, His amazing grace, rather than just give up and fall into self pity over their spiritual error, they came to a place really where they say, Lord, we don't want to quit. Uh, we need to recommit, we need to commit ourselves to you afresh, and they kind of here make a commitment to God, and we'll see this now as we go on into our next chapters. And so serious were they about their commitment, they say we're going to make a sure covenant, and we're going to write it. The idea here is actually like creating a, a, a legal contract. They actually wrote out their commitment, and it says they actually took the initiative, the, the leaders of the people, the Levites, the spiritual leaders, the priests, and they actually signed it. They sealed it. So they actually write a contract out of their commitment to God, and they sign their names upon it to show how serious they are, and just kind of a, a great thing to see. Sometimes I think we undervalue the benefit of actually making commitments to God. And uh, sometimes we can almost be apprehensive. Well, no sense in making a commitment because I probably won't keep it. And that can almost kind of in some ways become a, a far extreme. There's a time when I think we should make commitments to God. We make commitments In our marriage relationship, we make commitments, we sign contracts with jobs, with employers. Uh, There may be a time and a place where it's good for us to to make a commitment to the Lord and to actually maybe even write out that commitment to the Lord. And Lord, this is what I'm committing to and and I'm writing it down because that kind of helps keep us accountable. It, It keeps us In check When it's a a written out commitment and something we've kind of signed our name to, just like in any other arena of life, it keeps us all the more accountable. This is what you committed to. There it is right there in writing. And it helps us to stay a little bit more engaged and disciplined to make sure we keep and follow through with those commitments. And so this is what the people are doing here. And it seems chapter 10 gives the record now of this actual covenant and commitment that they wrote out. And they signed. It says, chapter 10, verse 1, Now those who placed their seal or signature on the document were, notice first and foremost, Nehemiah the governor. So again, Nehemiah was the leader among the people at this time. He was the one who led the rebuilding of the walls and followed God's calling and rallied the people together to perform this work of God. So beautiful to see him leading the way, leading from the front as their leader. He was the first one to sign on the dotted line as the the governor, even a civil official. He said, I'm in on that. We need to recommit ourselves to God. As well as it says, uh, that was there, Saraiah and Azariah and Jeremiah, and Pasher, and Amariah, and I'm not going to continue to read through the list of names, but you notice the end of verse 8, these were the priests, so now the priests, the spiritual leaders, the ministers among the people, they signed their name to the commitment, demonstrating that they wanted to be committed to God in these ways. As well, verse 9, then there were the Levites, and remember the the tribe of Levi were those who were to be the, the workers among the temple, those who carried the different burdens and handled different aspects of ministry. They functioned as well in cooperation with the priests in their spiritual duties and ministry. So these were ministry workers as well. And it describes the list of the Levites who signed this document in commitment from verse 9 uh, all the way down, it seems, through the end of verse 13. And then verse 14 down through verse 27 tells us that the leaders of the people, so these were the different leaders in different capacities, those who had leadership roles, and the leaders step forward and say, we're going to sign and make this commitment as well. And listing of the names there, once again, of the leaders, again, holding themselves accountable by signing this, putting their name on the dotted line, indicating they're in, and they're going to follow through. And then verse 28, the Holy Spirit kind of has mercy at the end of the list and finally just says, now the rest of the people, rather than continuing to list out the name. Because keep in mind, there were perhaps upward to 50,000 plus or more people uh, that could have been engaged if you take in consideration all those who were back in judah and participating in these things so uh, but this gives us a fair representation you have the the leaders the priests the the levites the spiritual leaders just the leaders generally of the families taking the initiative the leaders of the different clans and families saying they want to make this commitment to god and just beautiful i, I love the picture there of of everyone saying we are making this commitment together let's hold each other accountable let's all commit to this and there's something really, uh, I think, very helpful spiritually when a group of people are willing to maybe enter into a commitment to serve God in a fresh and a new way. Sometimes maybe something that would be valuable for us to take into consideration in our own walks with the Lord on occasion. Chapter 28, again, or excuse me, verse 28, now the rest of the people, the priests, it says, the Levites and the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethinim. remember those were also some temple workers, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. It says, to the law of God, that is the written word of God, with their wives, their sons, their daughters, and everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath, To walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his statutes, excuse me, and his ordinances and his statutes. So we're going to notice this commitment that they entered into here, where they actually write out a contract and sign it and make this official commitment spiritually to God, it kind of involves a few things. We'll see it involves uh, living a life of, of separation from the things of the world and therefore dedication to the things of God, particularly that they want to live in obedience to God's word. Also, we see that it describes here that it is a commitment in some ways, we might say, of, of being willing to support uh, the work of God and to participate in God's work and to take responsibility to engage on a personal level in the things of God. And so uh, we'll notice this as we go through We begin to see here in verses 28 uh, through 29 there As they talk about the different people and how it says, verse 28, those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands—that that is, from the people who weren't followers of God, those who we might say were heathen, they were unbelievers, and so their influence upon them would have led them in a wrong direction or drawn them into idolatry. And so, again, sometimes when we're making a commitment to God, to some degree, there needs to be some measure of separation, that we separate ourselves from things that are going to influence us to live in a wrong way, things that are going to kind of draw us into error and make us live like the rest of the people in the world. Remember, the the unsaved world is in a fallen condition. Their morals are different. Their principles are different. Their manners of life are different. And so if we want to commit to God in some way, whether it's when we first make a commitment to Jesus Christ to be his follower and to let him be the Lord over our life— Part of that involves a willingness of separation that we say we're going to come out from under kind of the sway and the rulership of the world and we're no longer going to live like the rest of the world the way we once did. We're going to separate from that so that we might now serve and follow the Lord instead. And so any commitment involves some degree of of separating ourselves from certain things and sometimes even certain people maybe certain relationships that aren't good. We need to break off connection to some degree of those relationships. doesn't mean we uh, completely isolate ourselves and no longer have interaction with people in the world. We still need to be a witness for Christ, and we want to have a w- an influence upon them. So we don't want to completely isolate, but we do want to do a degree kind of insulate ourselves so that we're not influenced by them and become strong in the Lord and instead be the one who is the influencer as we're having an effect upon them and not just kind of running with them and doing the same things that everyone else in the world is doing. So they separate themselves from something that's not good, and verse 28 says, as they separated themselves from that, it was also that they might separate themselves to the law of God, to walk in the commandments and the ordinances and the statutes given by Moses, it says there in verse 29, that they might walk in God's law. So separation from what's wrong so that they may separate themselves to obedience to God's word, to follow the written word of God. And again, if we're going to enter into any commitment of the Lord, there's a real good starting ground. Disconnect from what we shouldn't be doing and dedicate ourselves in a fresh way to doing what God's word says. Not just reading it intellectually, but reading God's Word, hearing God's Word, that we might live out responsively what the Word of God tells us we're supposed to do as a follower of God. Living God's way and walking in accordance with the written Word of God in our choices, our behavior, our lifestyle and perspective. This is what it means to truly be committed to the Lord. Jesus, remember, said, if you love me... Keep my commandments. Uh, Again, Jesus equated love for Him, dedication to Him in a personal way as our Lord. He he equated it to obedience to what He says, to His Word, uh, in a sense of what He speaks to us as our Lord, as we hear Him testify things to our heart by His Spirit, as well as just the written word of god jesus was the word of god incarnate he was the the living word manifest and so uh, this is important for us as well if we want to be dedicated and make a commitment to god and so serious were they it tells us that it wasn't just the leaders but it says literally that the wives the sons the daughters everyone who had knowledge and understanding again i like this the the, the leaders of the families took initiative and said, look, me and my household, like Joshua said, we're going to serve the Lord. And it seems that as the leaders made the commitment, the wives and the children followed along. The fathers took that initiative and the strength of their commitment to the Lord, encouraged as well as had a strong influence that, look, if you're a part of my household, we are making this commitment to God together. And and they led their wives and their children In that way, and so serious were they that it literally tells us that they entered into this commitment and so strong was their desire to observe it that verse 29, did you notice that? It says that they, verse 29, the beginning of it, they entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. In other words, what they were saying is we are so serious about this commitment to detach from the world and to dedicate ourselves to living and obeying the written word of God may a curse come upon us if we don't follow through with our commitment to God. Now, now that's pretty serious there. Again, understanding the curses from the Old Testament law, uh, that if they lived according to God's ways, they'd experience blessings, and God said, "And if you go outside of that and disobey my word, these curses will come upon you because you'll bring curses upon your life. And they were saying, we're willing to accept that. May we be cursed if we don't obey God's law. That's, That's a serious commitment there. Verse 30, they say, And we would not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. So, again, they were not remembered to intermarry, with the pagan peoples of the lands. This had nothing to do with ethnicity, had nothing to do with racial separation. That's not what the Bible's referring to at all when it gives those commands when God told his people not to intermarry with the people of the other nations. It was a religious issue. It was a spiritual issue. They did not worship Yahweh God. They worshiped Molech and and you know, just you know, Ashtareth and all the foreign idols and deities the things that they were involved in, sorcery, and just all the things that were pulling people in a way that would take them away from worship of the one true God. And God did not want them joining themselves in the closest possible human relationship, which was marriage, understanding how strong the influence of marriage and having a marriage partner is upon our life. God said, look, do not intermarry and be unequally yoked spiritually. It won't work. You cannot enter into a marriage relationship with someone who does not share the same God as you. It's not going to work, ultimately. And so God told them, do not intermarry with the people who are not followers of the one true God. They were forbidden to do that. It was against God's word. And so here, the fathers are holding that line here. They say, we will not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land. We're not going to let our daughters hang out with interact with, and then ultimately enter into marriages with unbelievers, with those who aren't following God. We're not going to allow that to happen. Uh, again, I, I love the, the picture here. Again, keep in mind, in that culture, uh, parents arranged the marriages. Uh, to a great degree, children had no say in who they got married to. They understood clearly marriage was a serious thing, and it was not left just to the whims of lust and infatuation and again, nothing's anything wrong with romance and all these kind of things, but they understood marriage was a commitment. It was a lifelong covenant and partnership. So the parents were heavily involved and the parents many times actually just arranged the marriages and you learned how to love somebody. You learned how to live with somebody and accept them as a life partner and be committed to them. Uh, This was kind of the way they operated, and that's why here, again, we will not give our daughters. The fathers refused to let their daughters marry those who were not right in the sight of God because it would not be best for their daughters' interests, as well as they say, we're not going to take their daughters for our sons. So again, I think very valuable and, and prudent to some degree to see the level of involvement that the parents had to help their children marry right individuals. I think there's great wisdom in this. I, I you know, think sometimes uh, as as parents, you know, w- the mistake can be made where we, we kind of give a little bit too much liberty at times in this area with our children when it comes to who they marry. I I realize there's a a delicate balance here in this to some degree, but I think that there should be a good, healthy understanding uh, that, that the parent should be involved to some degree. There should be that blessing, that endorsement of... A father, again, when, when I do marriage ceremonies, I've married two you know, of my own daughters off now, and when I you know, see somebody coming down the aisle, the question I ask before we go any further to that father who walks his daughter down the aisle is, who gives this woman in marriage today? And the idea there is we're conveying to everyone present that that father is, in essence, in that moment, giving over with his endorsement and blessing his daughter to the care of, and to enter into a relationship with that husband, who in essence replaces his role in his daughter's life, where he was her protector, her provider, the leader in her life, the one who took care of her and led her and guided her and helped her. And, 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 and I'm now giving her over. You have earned the right, and I'm now giving my daughter over to you. There's a transaction, a transition being made and and i think there's there's wisdom in that and, and if we're going to do that in a marriage ceremony i think we should do that in the process leading up to the marriage uh, where to a degree we don't too quickly let someone think they have right to our daughter to be able to be in relationship with him and pursue that uh, where we just kind of disengage i, I think that needs to be earned It needs to be proved, and there should be some degree of parental involvement there to help in that process as our children are trying to locate the right spouse, whether we're giving a daughter away, as well as, take notice, it says there that we will not take their daughters for our sons. So though we may give our daughters away, uh, let's not be too quick, for those of you who have sons, to just ignore the fact and kind of surrender too quickly Our level of involvement to some degree of making sure that our sons take the right woman and pursue the right relationship, that is going to be, apart from accepting and following Jesus Christ, the second most important and influential decision they are going to make in their life. And so we need to be careful who we allow to some degree them to pursue serious relationship with. And find a way to respectfully, graciously be involved in helping them in that process, making sure that we don't just kind of take our hands off completely and then just have maybe regret if they end up marrying someone that's not a believer, that doesn't follow the lure, that's, you know, it's just, it's going to cause great difficulty for them. Out of love for them, I love to see the picture here that the parents said, we will not allow these intermarriages that are unequally yoked spiritually to happen. Just a a beautiful strong stand there, but I think for good reason if we really understand the seriousness of marriage and the value of these kind of things. Verse 31 it says, and if the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day we would forego also the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. So take notice, another way they were obeying God's word is they weren't being greedy in trying to gain more or get ahead. God told them it was something that marked the Jewish people as a covenant people of God that on the seventh day they ceased from their labors. They, could, they worked six days a week. They could work their fields. They could do everything to be productive, and God wanted them. But as God rested on the seventh day after he created in six days, in that same pattern God said, six days you shall labor upon. On the seventh day they were to rest. They were to disconnect from normal labors and work and activities so that they might cultivate their relationship with God that they might be refreshed, they might be renewed physically, mentally, spiritually, and to give that to God and to trust that God would provide for them. They didn't need to greedily go out and work a seventh day a week and try and make extra money, but they had to trust that you know God wanted his, his people to give attention to him and that he would take care of them. That As they ceased from their labors, that God would provide for them. He would be the one to give them what they needed. They didn't have to try and keep striving to make more money seven days a week in greed or whatever. They were to honor this. And so it was a command. And so they said, we're going to honor this. We're not going to buy wares. We're not going to do business on that Sabbath day. Again, this was something that was just an issue of, of obedience to God, that they wouldn't let this subvert their relationship with God, You know, greed and monetary gain. And I think as God's people sometimes we have to be careful. There's a balance. We want to work hard and be productive but sometimes the, the love of money can really start to become a, a root of, of, of evil in our lives. Sometimes chasing the, the American dollar can have us so preoccupied doing things where we just need a little more, want a little more, and, uh, and we ultimately kind of just sabotage our spiritual life because we are maybe just greedily trying to get ahead a little bit more financially. And maybe we need to trust the Lord and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and let other things be added unto us as Jesus has promised. So I can never want to negate hard work, but the people recognize. And even the seventh year Sabbath, it was the same thing. They were to work the land for six years, and the seventh year they were not to work the land. They were let it rest, let the soil replenish, and God promised that he would give them a bumper crop and provide for them. And So part of this resting was also to seek God, but also to depend that God would still provide, that if they were giving attention to God and not outworking the fields, that God would still take care of them. So it was a faith issue, and they had to trust the Lord with this, and here the people are making that commitment. We're going to do this. We're not going to buy wares and grain and sell things on the Sabbath Uh, We just won't do that. We're going to do things God's way and trust that God will honor that and take care of us. Another part of their commitment, verse 32 down, you notice is now it speaks of their support of God's house. And as they made a commitment to God, it also prompted them to want to participate in the ministry of God's work and the things of God's house. You'll notice in verse 32, I believe it's down through like... Around verse 39, pretty much through the end of the chapter, there'll be multiple references to the house of God, the house of God, and how they were supporting the house of God in different ways here. Verse 32, it says, also we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering on the Sabbath, the new moons, the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, notice, and all the work of the house of our God, referring to the temple, the place where the worship of God's people stemmed from. And here, this is all about, again, participating responsibly in the things of the house of God, the temple of the Lord, where worship of God's people would take place at. And the description there in verse 33 of how they would, in a sense, give this donation to help facilitate and support what was necessary for these different offerings to take place and the ministry work to happen in the house of God. In verse 32 it says that we made ordinances for ourselves. That is, that we, in a sense, made a commitment and said, look, we are going to require of ourselves to do this to be able to offer our share of supply financially to help the work to go on in God's house. It says, we would exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of God. Now, Exodus 30, they would do a half shekel. Other places, there are other amounts. But again, the whole purpose of this was that that was money that was utilized to help support and sustain what was necessary to keep God's temple functioning so that the house of God could continue to operate, so that the people of God could continue to worship and seek God and the ministers of God, the Levites and the priests could continue to do their spiritual duties which would in turn help the people and continue to contribute to the spiritual health of the nation and keep them all in right relationship with the Lord. And so this money was exacted of themselves. Still, we're going to require this of ourselves. We're going to make this commitment to contribute this so that these different things can be taken care of and financed for the house of God. Verse 34 says, We cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for bringing the wood offering into the house of God. According to our father's houses at the appointed times year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord, our God, as it is written in the law. So again, the law of God said that the altar was to continuously burn. Now for an altar to continuously be burning in the temple precincts, you have to constantly be feeding it with firewood. Uh, so you had to keep bringing more wood to keep the fire burning. And this was another way that they could contribute and help. It says here that they cast lots. That is, they set up an order and a timing when they would take turns bringing the wood offering to make sure they kept the fire burning at the altar. And they took turns, again, kind of taking ownership of what would happen in God's house, taking responsibility. Hey, this week it's your turn to bring the wood. Next week it's this group's turn to bring the wood. But all of us need to do our share in bringing the wood for the offering to make sure that we keep the fire burning there on the altar in God's house. God's word required this, and the people are kind of just, what you see here. is they're just kind of taking ownership of what happens in God's house they're taking a level of personal responsibility that look this house of God is for our benefit and and we need to participate in doing what is necessary to make sure it continues to function properly verse 35 says and we made ordinances to bring notice the first fruits that is the the best the very first of whatever it was they came into possession of the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all of our trees year by year, to, again, the house of the Lord, to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle. Now, again, the firstborn sons, they would redeem with a monetary amount uh, because they, the firstborn child belonged to God, in a sense, but they wouldn't actually give their child to the Lord or dedicate it as they would an animal. They would redeem the firstborn child with a monetary donation. But also the firstborn of their cattle, again, as it is written, notice, these were all things in obedience to the word of God to the law the firstborn of our herds and flocks to the house of God to the priests who minister in the house of God again these first fruits were brought to the priests to the spiritual workers and leaders serving and ministering in the house of God to bring the first fruits of our dough our offerings the fruit from all kinds of trees verse 37 says the new wine and oil to the priests to be kept, notice, in the storerooms of the house of our God. So they actually had rooms where they would store these supplies so the temple was adequately stocked for what it needed, not just... operating day by day. But, But again, they actually had storerooms to take in these supplies and keep, and then they would draw from the storerooms as they needed it accordingly. And to bring the tithes of our land, again, that's a tenth portion, a tithe of what they acquired, the tithe of their lands, and they brought it, verse 37 says, to the Levites. For the Levites, God says, should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. So they said, look, these tithes, these offerings, these belong to the priest, to the Levites, that they might be uh, sustained to be able to continue to do the work and the ministry in God's house so that it stays open and continues to function to honor God and to help us spiritually. Verse 38, "And the priest and the descendant of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites shall receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God and to the storerooms of the storehouse for the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offerings. Verse 39 of the grain, the new wine, the oil in the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are. And look at the end of verse, the final verse of the chapter and it says, and we, the people said, will not neglect the house of our God. So Again, beautiful to see their heart in this. This was for the house of our God. Just, it was a representation of their heart for God. And when you have a heart for God, you'll have a heart for the house of God because the house of God is where his presence was manifest and working on his people. It was where worship was lifted to him. It was where the word of God was ministered and singing and praise was lifted up and sacrifices were being made and forgiveness of sins was being reconciled with the offerings and the blood that was being shed there upon the altar. So because of that, the people, as their heart was inclined towards God, they had a, a renewed heart towards the house of God, the house of God. And I think whenever a person comes to a place where they really become, in a greater way, committed to the Lord, they will find that there begins to become a greater commitment to the house of God, that they'll want to participate, they'll want to support, and whether that is serving and doing things, whether it's bringing some wood or or helping out in some practical way or serving or doing some function of ministry— as well as, to a great detail, what's being described here, people actually, it says, making ordinances and exacting upon themselves with a determined commitment. This is the portion we are going to give financially of our resources, of all that we have. This is the portion we are going to give to the house of God to support what goes on in God's house, to keep the doors open, to keep things functioning, to supply those who are ministering, the priests and the Levites, so that the ministry and the worship and the work of God's house would be sustained. And that's why they come to the end of this chapter saying, we will not neglect the house of our God. You know, beautiful thing when that hard attitude comes to pass. You know, we, we can be guilty of neglecting a lot of things. You know, help us as God's people that we would never neglect the house of God. Certainly, something that is so important to all of us and that we'd all take ownership lord the, the house of god it, it's something we all take ownership of uh, again whether it's the the local facility and assembly where we gather as the lord's people as a church family whether it's just the you know the, the coming together and what it takes to do ministry that we would all have a heart to want to participate to do our share responsibly and, and to support and say lord we don't want to neglect your house we want to make sure that we're faithful to do that. Now, I mean, certainly these are Old Testament principles and statutes they were living by. I mean, you know, how does this affect us you know, as, as New Testament Christians in regards to to giving? Well, again, we see throughout the Scripture the giving of their first fruits, honoring the Lord with the first fruits. The idea is giving our best to the Lord. And certainly we should always do that. We should give the best, the first fruits of everything unto the Lord, the Lord shouldn't get our leftovers. The idea is He deserves the first fruits of my life, the first fruits of my energy, not the leftovers. The first fruits of my time, first fruits of my commitment, first fruits of my talents, first fruits of my resources and my finances. He deserves the best, and that should always be our heart. Now, when we come to a New Testament perspective, I would encourage you passages like Second Corinthians eight. And 9, as well as 1 Corinthians 16, teach us from a New Testament perspective that we are to give according to grace. Uh, There's no, I don't see New Testament obligation you have to give a particular percentage. I'm of the personal conviction that I think you know, 10% is a, is a starting point for me personally. Again, and that's just me personally, but that may not be the same for everybody depending upon their convictions or their financial situation. Uh, the important thing is the New Testament teaches the aspect of giving, that we should all be giving in some way. Remember, Jesus even recognized the widow who gave a few mites, and he said she gave more than everyone else that gave even that was wealthy so it's not the amount it, it was the way that she gave that she did give even though she had nothing to give that she gave as an act of worship and she gave sacrificially and she gave with a heart of purity because she loved the lord and she loved what was happening there in the god's house and among the people of god that's why she gave there in the temple treasury and Jesus saw that and Jesus sees everything. It's not the amount, it's the attitude of our heart that the Lord honors, and that's why the Bible says that we should give cheerfully, not grudgingly or of necessity. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, it shouldn't be, oh, I have to give this, or, oh, I, No, it shouldn't be like that. It's, Lord, you're worthy of this. You are my ultimate provider. All of my provision comes from you, and so everything belongs to you, and how do you want me to manage it? And it's a way of honoring God and thankfulness and worship that we participate financially as an act of worship just like we do in prayer and worship singing and studying the Word and all the other acts of worship that we see our giving as an act of worship and that we do it with a heart of joyfulness, not out of obligation or grudging attitude. God doesn't want our heart to be in that condition because then somehow we think we're just bribing God, like we're paying God off. No, it's, it's to be given in worship. But it also is to be given, in a sense, with an attitude of a decision And a sense of discipline. Again, from a New Testament perspective, it doesn't tell us just to give randomly, periodically, or if we see a a basket coming down an aisle that all of a sudden we feel guilty because everyone else is maybe throwing in something here or there, so we kind of quickly, randomly throw something in there thoughtlessly. Uh, The Lord wants us to be purposeful in our giving. Uh, so much to the degree where the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 16, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I've given orders for the churches in Galatia, so you must also do. On the first day of the week, which would be Sunday, let each one of you lay something, the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 16, lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So the New Testament teaches us that we should give responsively as an attitude of worship. It says that we all should give something. Everyone can give something to participate in some way, to take ownership of God's house and of God's work, and we all love and serve the same Lord, so everyone should give something. It also tells us that we should determine in advance. That is, we should prayerfully think about, not in the moment, prayerfully think about, talk to the Lord, talk to our spouse if we're married. What does the Lord want us to do? What does the Lord want us to give? And notice, even proportionally says, laying aside according to how he may prosper. So we're to give in a proportionate manner, proportion to how God's prospered us. And if God has prospered you tremendously, then maybe proportionately you can give a little more generously. If somebody's in a difficult spot financially, well, proportionately, maybe them not giving very much at that time may be wise for them. Uh, so again, it's to be proportionate to our income, to what we're able to do, but it's to be given in an act of faith, Everyone participating, we're to predetermine what we do in such a way, it says, so that when Paul says, when I come through town, all we're doing is receiving what you've already prepared. Uh, We're not asking you to give something, we're not demanding, we're trying to take a collection from you, then it's not compulsion, it's done, this is what we've predetermined, we already know what we want to give, and it's just done in a very systematic way. So systematic. It should be proportioned. We should prayerfully think about in advance and do it as an act of worship in just a regular, disciplined way. This is the way the New Testament tells us that we are to give of our resources financially, And then on occasion, if there's a situation where we want to help out or be benevolent with someone outside of what we give to the house of God, where we worship at, uh, then that's something else that we determine and prayerfully think through as well. So as we come to chapter 11, it says, Now the leaders, Nehemiah 11, the leaders of the people, dwelled at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, to be the holy city, and nine tens were to dwell in other cities." And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. So what this describes here is, as the people were there in the area, a great majority of them were living outside of the walls of Jerusalem, outside of the city, in the rural areas, working their fields. They had become established. They were working their farms. But the city, now that it was rebuilt and the walls were rebuilt, it needed to be populated, Some people needed to dwell with inside the city, and so it was a sacrifice to some degree to do that. You may have had to give up your farm and your comforts and some of the opportunities and relationships you had developed. Uh, And so they basically here kind of did a lottery. They cast lots for a, a tenth percent of the population. They cast lots, and those people were committed if their lot fell to uproot, to leave their comforts and their fields, and they had to go and dwell in the city, and they kind of did this in the most just way possible, where they cast lots, and whoever's lot came up, they trusted that was the Lord determining that. But notice verse 2 says, the people blessed, however, all those who willingly offered themselves. So some people said, look, whether my lot gets cast or not, I am willing to make that sacrifice. For the sake of the Lord, I am willing to, to uproot from my comforts, to let go of my fields, to give up these relationships I've established living over here in this particular village or territory. I'm willing, almost sort of like a you know, a, a missions endeavor, I'm willing to go live in the in the city of Jerusalem. I'm willing to go live there. And it was more risky to live there. It was more difficult to live there at this point in time, but they were saying, I'm willing to make that choice maybe if others can't, maybe if others aren't able to, and I'm willing to do it because I love the Lord. And it's a wonderful thing when people have a heart of willingness to make maybe personal sacrifices or inconvenience themselves by giving up certain things to maybe go somewhere and to plant themselves in a location for the cause of the Lord. And so the people bless those who willingly went and dwelt in Jerusalem. Verse three says, "And these are the heads of the provinces who dwell at Jerusalem." Uh, and it begins to then describe those who were in that territory. Again, documenting and notice God took note. The Holy Spirit recognizes everything that we do for God, those who went. Verse 4 mentions the children of Judah and gives a list of names of those who went. Verse 7 then describes the sons of Benjamin and the different names of the people who were dwelling there. Verse 10 mentions of the priests. There were Jedediah and Jureb and Jachin and Sarahiah, who it says was the leader of the house of God. Verse 11 Verse 12 says, and their brethren who did the work of the house were 822. And Adadiah, and then it begins to list again a number of names of people who were participating in this way and serving God. Verse 14, take note, it mentions their overseer. Again, notice God establishes overseers, so things are organized and well-led and the things that are done for his purposes. Their overseer was a man called Zabdiel, the son of one of the great men. Verse 15 tells us also of the Levites. There was Shemaiah, and verse 16, Shabbathiah and Josabad of the heads of the Levites, and they had oversight of the business outside of the house of God. So that's interesting. There were some who had oversight and who were engaged doing things inside of the house of God. The ministry work, taking care of you know the things that the priests did, and but then there were those also who it was their God given calling to take care of the business outside of the house of God. Uh, maybe they were the grounds crew, the lawns, you know, the, those who took care of the you know the the, the lawns and, and the exterior maintenance and the you know courtyards of the temple precincts or whatever. Their calling was to take care of the business. The practical stuff, the business outside of the house of God. God's given us all different callings, and the Holy Spirit takes note of and appreciates how each one does his part, which is important. Verse 17 says, And then Mataniah, the son of Micah, he was a leader, notice, who began, verse 17, the thanksgiving with prayer. And Babukaiah, the second among his brethren, and Abda, the son of Shemua, the son of Galah, the son of Judithin, These were those, notice, engaged in musical ministry. It says, and and worshipful ministry we're gonna see. It says this particular man, Mattaniah, he was designated by the Lord to be a leader to start the Thanksgiving prayer time, the prayer that focused on thanksgiving and giving gratitude to God. That was his specific role, to lead people and to lead the giving of thanks. Unto God. That was his calling and his responsibility. You know, it's kind of a neat thing. God give us more people who would lead in thankfulness. Verse 18 mentions then, uh, verse 18 and 19, the gatekeepers and list of some of those who were serving in that way. Remember, the gatekeepers are sort of like the security staff, the ushers, those who monitored who came in and out of the city or the temple precincts. So they monitored those kind of things, making sure they protected. God's ministry, making sure that they monitored those things, kept a peaceable atmosphere for God's house. Verse 22 mentions also the overseer of the Levites at Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micah, of the sons of Asaph also were the singers in charge of the service of the house of God. So this representation here, of a man named Uzi, who was an overseer, it says, of the Levites. So he provided oversight to the servant staff of the Levite people. Asaph, we're told, we've seen his name before. He wrote many of the the Psalms. We have a man named Asaph. It says, of the sons of Asaph. So again, these were, should show you, a musical family. Uh, And it is interesting, you know, some studies have been done that actually show that things like pitch and musical ability actually can be inherited generically, uh, generically (laughs) genetically in families. And so uh, very interesting here. We have the sons of Asaph and they're competent singers. They have pitch and they have an ability to lead musically. They were the singers in charge of the service of the house of God. Thank goodness for spirit anointed people who are gifted to sing and lead music to help us in our worship of the Lord in that way, in that special calling, and these were those taken note of in that way. Verse 23 says, It was the king's command concerning them that a certain portion should be for the singers and a quota day by day. So that's pretty interesting. Even in that day, the king of Persia at that time thought that it was necessary to finance those who would lead the singing among the people of God, to be able to lift up worship to the Lord. Shows you the value uh, that was seen of lifting the voices in song to the Lord. Verse 24, there was then Pethiah, who was, it says, verse 24, the king's deputy in all manners concerning the people. Verse 25 also mentions the different villages then with their fields, and some of the children of Judah dwelt in Kirjath Arba and its villages in Debon and its villages, and of course the remainder of the chapter describes the different villages and outlying areas where the people lived at. So uh, again, some were called to be in the city, others were called to live in the surrounding areas, in the villages Outside, I find it interesting. Even down in verse thirty-five, there's a mention there of those who were living in the valley of craftsmen. Uh, again, just interesting to see how all these different people, according their Judean divisions, uh, w- were living in the areas where you might say God had sown them, uh, and God had put them where they were. Uh, some were going to dwell in the city of Jerusalem; others would dwell outside. But God took note of what each one was doing, where each person was, and what a great encouragement. You know, We may look at some of these things, their lists, and uh, but again, at the end of the day, they remind us how God is clearly aware of every detail of our lives. God knows exactly where we're at, where we're located. He knows what we're doing. He knows you know, what contribution we make. He knows what our part is, what our role is. And, and and so important to realize God values all of that. He doesn't esteem one is more important than the other. What he esteems is that the highest calling of God is to fulfill the will of God for our life, to know who we are, where we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to be doing, and to know above all else that we do have a part to play and we should all be participants. That's the biggest key. No spectators in the kingdom of God. No spectators in the church. We're all to be participants, participating by worshiping, participating by serving, participating by supporting and helping financially, participating as a family, each doing our part and God takes notice of that, and as each person does their part, Ephesians 4 says it contributes to growth of the body and edification. And as each part of the body does its share the body, is healthy and wonderful things begin to happen. So uh, read ahead. We're almost coming to the close of Nehemiah. We'll begin with chapter 12 next time, a little bit more of some list things, and we'll see then the dedication of the temple, this wonderful dedication ceremony that they conduct of the house of God. Let's pray together.